greeting and argument of the sermons upon the epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sermons upon the Epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians by John Calvin, translated by Arthur Golding. Greeting and Argument To all Christians baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, dwelling or abiding in France. Greeting. It is a wondrous matter, right dearly beloved brethren, how all of us glory in our baptism, and yet consider not all with one accord, what that mark importeth of its own nature, namely by following the intent of him that is the author of it. For no doubt, but if we did so, we should all join together in one holy consent to worship the only one God in spirit and truth, and to acknowledge Jesus Christ for our only Saviour, Advocate, Master, yea, and Lord, as touching the government of our souls and consciences, and we would take his only word for our wisdom, guide, and rule of our whole life, and specially of his service, without mingling of the intentions of man's brain with it, how great antiquity or countenance soever they seem to have. Yea, and for the outward government and visible order of the church, we would hold us to that which our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we were baptized, hath showed thereof to his apostles, and by them enjoined the whole world to follow even unto the last day. And certainly then should the strange confusion and divisions cease, which are to be seen in Christendom, whereof those are the cause, which will not hearken unto God, and yield full authority to his word, which fault shall be laid to their charge at the judgment of God, unless they turn a new leaf. The Lord and Father of mercy grant them grace so to do, according as supplication is made to him for them, in all holy assemblies, where he is called upon according to his will, in the only name of Jesus Christ. That is the thing which we desire. For here the case concerneth not the bringing in of some new device, after the fancy of men. Neither strive we to make the victory fall upon men's sides, whatsoever they be, as some surmise but that God and his word may have the upper hand against all abuses, superstitions, and lies of Satan, and that we may altogether give glory to our God, confessing that both we and our fathers have overshamefully forgotten him, insomuch as we have not followed his holy law, but have bowed aside, both to the right hand and to the left. And truly, whensoever we read God's word in a tongue that we understand, or hear it preached, and declared purely, he allureth us to him, to make the like acknowledgement. And he hath done so much in these late years, by striving with his mercy against the malice of the world, that diverse have returned into the right way, whom others, yea, even of all degrees, do follow still anew. But yet it is not that enough, unless the residue which have hitherto been deaf or asleep do bethink themselves to awake in good earnest, and to have ears to hear, as saith Jesus Christ. Therefore we entreat and exhort them to it in God's name, that they may discharge themselves of the promise whereunto their baptism doth secretly bind them, as hath been said, and to further them therein besides the lively voices of the true ministers and other books containing faithful expositions of the scripture. We offer them here the sermons of Master John Calvin upon the epistle of the Apostle St. Paul 
to the Ephesians, where, as we hope, they shall have matter to fare the better by for the plainer understanding of the things which they shall either hear preached or read alone by themselves afterwards. To make long rehearsal of things that might be alleged in commendation of the doctrine herein contained, or of the manner of teaching used by the author, which is both simple and familiar, and yet nevertheless full of authority and force, it is now needful. For we be sure that such as seek God's honour, and their own salvation, shall in reading them perceive that the author had none other meaning with them, and that shall even the malicious sort themselves be driven to confess, spite of their hearts. Wherefore, to conclude, write, dear brethren, which shall meet with this book, we pray you new again to give ear to our God and to his Son our Master, who by his servant and excellent minister of his church declareth the things which his holy apostle had long ago preached with lively voice, and afterward compiled briefly in writing for us, and all that shall come after us to the world's end. And of what degree soever you be, or have been, shrink not back, forasmuch as it is God that speaketh, who hath loved us so dearly, that he hath not spared his own Son, but hath given him to death to redeem us from death, and from the vain traditions of our fathers. Come on, therefore, and let us all serve our God with one accord, walking in the ways which he teacheth us, and forsaking our own, that is to say, all that disagreeth with the rule of his word, and making all his gifts to serve to his glory. And in so doing we shall be Christians both in name and deed. We shall discharge ourselves of our promise made in baptism, we shall see good agreement in Christianity, and we shall serve for a good example to the Jews and Turks, which are yet enemies to Christendom. So be it, so be it. Amen. Your brethren in our Lord, the causes of these sermons to be brought to light. The argument of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. It is well enough known that Ephesus was a city of the Lesser Asia, renowned for many causes, and St. Luke reporteth in the Acts how our Lord got himself a people there by the service of St. Paul, how the church began there, and what furtherance it had. As for me, I will touch nothing here, but only that which belongeth properly to the argument of the epistle. St. Paul had taught the Ephesians the pure doctrine of the gospel, and when he was prisoner at Rome, perceiving that they had need to be confirmed, he wrote this epistle to them. In the first three chapters he standeth chiefly upon the praising and magnifying of God's grace. For in the beginning of the first chapter, after his greetings, he speaketh of God's free election, to the end that they should know that they were now called to the kingdom of heaven, because they had been predestinated unto life before they were born. And herein shineth forth God's wonderful mercy, and the saving of our souls cometh of God's free adoption, as of the true and natural wellspring thereof. And forasmuch as men's wits are too weak to conceive so high a secret, he prayeth God to enlighten the Ephesians with the full knowledge of Christ. In the second chapter, the better to set forth the greatness of God's grace, he putteth them in remembrance how wretched they were till they were called to Jesus Christ, by comparing their present state and their former state together. For we can never perceive sufficiently how greatly we be beholden to our Lord Jesus, nor consider as becometh us how great his benefits are towards us, except it be laid afore us on the contrary part, how wretched our state is without him. Also he amplifieth the matter new again, saying that they had been Gentiles and strangers to the promises of eternal life, which God had made alonely to the Jews. 
In the third chapter he showeth that his apostleship had been appointed peculiarly for the Gentiles, to the intent that they who had been strangers a long time might now be grafted into the people of God. And for because it was an unaccustomed thing, and such a one as troubled many men's minds with the newness thereof, he calleth it a secret, hidden from all times, saying nevertheless that the uttering of the same secret was committed unto him. Towards the end he prayeth God again to give the Ephesians the perfect and lively knowledge of Jesus Christ, so as they may not covet to know any other thing. By which words he not only goeth about to make the Ephesians acknowledge the great number of benefits and gracious gifts that God had bestowed upon them, and to show themselves thankful for the same, by yielding themselves wholly unto him. He also intendeth rather to put them out of all doubt of their own calling. For by all likelihood St. Paul was afraid, lest the false apostles should step in to trouble their faith by making them believe that they had been but half instructed. For whereas they had been Gentiles, and had newly received the true Christian doctrine, they had not heard the ceremonies nor circumcision spoken of. But they that intended to bring the law in Europe among the Christians said that all such as were not consecrated to God by circumcision were unholy. For it was their common song that none ought to be reckoned among the people of God which were not circumcised, and that all the ceremonies commanded by Moses ought to be kept. And for that cause they spake evil of St. Paul, for making Jesus Christ common to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews, and affirmed that his apostleship was an unhallowing of the heavenly doctrine, because he did after that sort offer and set forth the covenant of grace to unclean people without any difference at all. Therefore, to the end that the Ephesians, being assailed with such slanders, should not change their minds, he intended to give them a remedy. And so, whereas on the one side he telleth them so advisedly that their being called to the gospel was for that they had been chosen before the making of the world, he warneth them on the other side not to think that the gospel came to them by haphazard at the appointment of men, or that it lighted in their laps at aladventure. For he telleth them that whereas Christ was preached to them, that preaching was nothing else than the uttering or publishing of God's everlasting determination. When, as he setteth the unhappy plight of their former life before their eyes, he therewithal putteth them in mind, that their getting out of so deep a gulf was through the singular and wonderful mercy of God. And whereas he speaketh of the apostleship which was committed to him towards the Gentiles, he doth it to strengthen them in the faith which they had once received, because their calling into the communion of Christ's church was wrought by the will of God. Nevertheless, look how many sentences here be. So many warnings are there to cheer up the Ephesians to acknowledge God's benefits. In the fourth chapter he describeth the means whereby our Lord governeth and maintaineth his church, namely by the gospel which is preached by men. Whereupon it followeth that that is the very point of perfection, and that the church cannot otherwise be kept up unappaired. And therefore the apostle's meaning is to commend unto the Ephesians the ministry whereby God reigneth among us. Afterward he cometh to speak of the fruits of preaching, that is to wit, of innocency, holiness, and of all duties of a Christian man. And he not only teacheth what the lives of Christians ought to be in general, but also interlaceth particular instructions which concern every man's peculiar calling or vocation. End of greeting and the argument.